I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. After the 2016 elections, you know, after all the tears, after the the binging on chocolate, after all the bottles of wine, many of us, myself included, felt compelled to do something, to act or to help in some way with the resistance. While my two guests today decided to start organizations, organizations that help mobilize young voters, progressive voters, people of color, and people who were moved to run for office. My first guest, Christina Sitsun, she founded the Texas-based organization JOLT. JOLT aims to mobilize and unite Texas's Latino community. There are roughly 11 million Latinos living in Texas at the moment, and JOLT aims to channel their political power into action to move politicians to address issues impacting Latinos. Christina and I, we talk about the recent Texas primary, DACA, and of course the 2018 midterms. So here is my conversation with Christina Sitsun. Christina Sitsun, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So your organization, Jolt, it focuses specifically on the Latino community in Texas with the goal of energizing and mobilizing the Latino community. And you say you want to transform Texas. So before the existence of Jolt, what was the political climate like there for the Latino community? Was there some kind of central organizational core? Well, I think what's important to know about Texas is that Um, Certain people in the Republican Party, like Donald Trump and um, Steve Miller and different legislators across the country and people are grappling with is the fact that our country is changing, that the fact that people of color will soon be the majority. And in Texas, we already are. We're a state of 27 million, where nearly 40 population is Latino, 12 percent are African-American, and there's a growing Asian-American population as well. So we really feel like the work that we're doing in Texas, the questions we're trying to figure out about how we build a democracy that represents all of us, how we protect the rights of immigrants and people of color, that those questions will be fought and won here in Texas. So we're trying to build out the power and voice of young Latinos because half of all those under the age of 19 in our state are Latino. And we know that the reason we see legislators passing legislation against immigrants and communities of color to suppress our rights and votes are because of the potential power we hold to transform Texas and the entire country. Yeah, so I would imagine that after the election, maybe your priorities have changed. So there are lots of things for your organization to focus on. You've got, you know, pay equity, you've got action on immigration, of course, voting rights. But how have the priorities shifted since Trump's election? Well, you know, Jolt was founded right after the 2016 election. Um, Okay. I founded Jolt. Um, I'd been organizing undocumented immigrant workers in Texas for the last decade and had planned to launch Jolt with the concept that uh, Hillary was probably going to win and that there would be a slow build of the organization because I was six (laughs) six months pregnant at the time. Um, My husband is a dreamer. And so this election, this is our first son that was going to be born. So this election was very personal to us. Um, And so when Trump won, um, it felt like the best thing to do for my community and for the future of my son was to launch Jolt immediately to be able to build a movement of young Latinos. And we are the only organization statewide that's organizing young Latinos to lift up the power of their voice and vote that's based here in Texas. Right. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard something similar to that, where, you know, people had plans, you know, for Hillary Clinton's election, you know, and what they would tell their children and what their plans were. And then the pivot that they made after the November election, the 2016 election. Um, I was kind of in the same position. I wasn't pregnant, but I had a child and I was, you know, all prepared to tell them that, you know, we have our first one president and this is what our country is. And, and, you know, 
again, like yourself, my my focus shifted. So yeah, but I want to talk a bit about the Texas primaries. Um, and, you know, it's getting a lot of national attention because, of course, you're trying to unseat Ted Cruz, right? And you have Beto O'Rourke, who won the primary. So can you talk a little bit about that, that election that just passed? Yeah, I think the important thing to know is that Listen, Republicans can't hold power nationally without Texas. Um, We hold 36 congressional seats, 38 electoral votes. So last election, you know, while people have focused a lot on what this election meant in Trump's win, there are real opportunities to make change in the South and Southwest. This is where you see huge population surges of people of color. And in Texas, we saw close to half a million new voters uh, come out and vote this last election and get Texas to be within single digits of flipping. Those shifts are not lost on the Republican Party. And so they are afraid this uh, midterm. You even saw our governor, Greg Abbott, and Ted Cruz send emails to their supporters about the real fear that they saw of Democrats coming out and progressives coming out in the midterms because more Democrats voted double the amount than voted in the last midterms that we had. That's a huge amount of people coming out in the state. I think there's two important things. Um, Beto's running a really dynamic campaign. He's not setting up a pack. He's building a pretty large war chest of small dollar donations. And he's running on a progressive, bold message. He's talking about immigration reform, about decriminalizing marijuana and issues that reach a broad sector of the population. And he's traveling and touring the entire state, which is not something that a lot of Democratic candidates do. While he's doing that, I think he's running a good campaign, but we need to help him run a great campaign. There were some challenges in this last primary. He won with 62% of the vote. However, he spent $4.6 million and his uh, closest contender was Sima Hernandez, a progressive Latina that spent just $4,000 and she took 24% of the vote. Right. I read that. And that, I mean, (laughs) I'm just trying to do the math in my head. So $4,000 for 24% of the vote. So what does that that mean exactly? Is Is it a given that you know, in November that O'Rourke will take those voters that went to SEMA or how can he ensure to energize that sector of voters that voted for her? You know, I think that the Democratic Party generally has real challenges with reaching out to their base. They know they depend on voters of color, but they often take them for granted. You see this with African-American women that have the highest voter turnout for Democratic candidates, yet we don't have a party that's mobilizing on the issues that impact African-American women. And similarly, here in Texas, one in three eligible voters are Latino. As I mentioned, we make up close to 40% of the population by 2030 will be the majority. But Latino voter outreach is often an afterthought. And I want to be clear, Wendy Davis had very similar numbers in the primary. She had another unknown uh, Latino candidate that took nearly that same percentage in the primary. And her campaign, those running her campaign, failed to understand real work he needs to do to energize and focus on Latino voters, go and meet them where they're at, message and talk to them directly, and make sure that he has a robust field operation to knock on doors of Latino voters from other local Latino leaders. We need to not take Latino voters for granted and assume that just because he's going to be at the top of the ticket and Ted Cruz is so terrible that Latinos are going to show up. Uh, Candidates have to put the time and money and resources into communities of color to get them to turn out and vote and make sure that they're addressing the issues that our communities face. So what exactly does Beto O'Rourke need to do in Texas for the Latino community? So I think Beto needs to do a few things. One, he needs to have local Latino leaders going out and mobilizing voters. He needs to have a, a robust field operation that's localized 
politicized. He needs to make sure that he's reaching out to the institutions and leaders in the Latino community, going to them versus waiting for them to come to his events. And the third thing is, is he has to message and talk to directly the issues that the Latino community faces. Oftentimes, candidates will only speak to Spanish language media, and that hits an important part of the population, but it definitely doesn't hit all of it, especially for young Latinos, which are a very progressive voting block. They're not watching TV. They're not reading the papers. And so they need to make sure that they're talking to them. They need to work on immigration, but they also have to address the other issues that Latinos face. We are not a monolithic population. Immigration is a very important issue to our community, especially for young people, because 53% of young Latinos in our state have at least one parent that is foreign born. But we also are the least likely to graduate from college. There are real economic and healthcare issues that our communities face that Bethel will need to address as well. So is he working with Jolt or are you working to help him kind of craft a better campaign for November? So Jolt is a 501c4, so we don't coordinate with candidates, but we are holding our town hall that Beto is coming to at the end of April, where hundreds of our members are coming together to hear from him and also for him to hear from them about how, for instance, student debt is impacting young Latinos across the state to talk about health care and climate change and immigration reform. You know, at Jolt, we believe we elect good people and we want to elect someone like Beto once we endorse him. But then we want to push and support him to do right by our community. We don't believe we just elect good people and go home. We believe we elect good people and support them to do the right thing by our community. Right. So let's talk a bit about midterms. So, you know, Ted Cruz, that isn't the only seat in Texas. There's also a governor's race and there's several congressional districts, right? So what are your goals for those midterm races? So Jolt is looking at mobilizing tens of thousands of voters in different parts of the state. Some of those key races, including two congressional races. We have Pete Sessions up in uh, Dallas. There were four congressional races that are held by Republicans that went to Hillary this last election. And so those are four congressional races that people are going to be watching, plus the Senate race. And there are many state representatives also that are up, voted for some of the most anti-immigrant, anti-Latino legislation in the country. What a lot of people don't know that happened in Texas is that SB4 passed, but SB4 is the most far-reaching anti-immigrant, anti-Latino law in the country. It, it seeks to force all of our local law enforcement to become a deportation force for the Trump administration. And this law even allows locally elected leaders to be sanctioned and removed from office simply for speaking in its opposition. Now, two courts have already ruled that unconstitutional, but that was included in the law as a way to instill fear across the community for people to even stand with communities that were going to be targeted by this legislation. So we're going to be campaigning against legislators that voted for that law as well. Yes, as before. I mean, it's it promotes racial profiling and that it forces municipalities and campus officials to it allows their staff to report to ICE people's nationalities and their immigration status. And it's even been dubbed the anti-sanctuary city measure, right? That's right. It bans the idea of sanctuary cities. And it just, you know, I think people think about Texas and they think white cowboy. Yeah. But in Texas, the majority of the population are people of color. And when we live under a Trump administration that even calls Mexicans, uh, people of Mexican descent that are third, fourth generation, says that they're not American and that they're more tied to Mexico, you can imagine what signal that sends to local law enforcement yeah. about 
who is deemed American enough and who gets profiled and whose rights get violated. Yeah, one of the more disturbing elements, I think, of this bill is that it allows for victims and witnesses of crimes to be interrogated about their immigration status. You know, actually, in an earlier episode, I spoke with author and reporter Bernice Young. She wrote a book recently titled In a Day's Work. And that book is about when in certain sectors of the service industry, you know, like farm workers or janitorial workers and people who do domestic work, many of whom are undocumented, and they're often victims of sexual violence. And the uncertainty of their immigration status, it makes it really hard to come forward, right, to report these crimes against them. So, you know, I would imagine that the addition of something like SB4 would just exacerbate that problem. Um, that's right. I think it's, it's not just uh, cruel. It's a really stupid idea to um, make local law enforcement um, ask people, interrogate people about their immigration status in a state where one in five people are foreign born. Yeah. Um, and um, we already have seen a huge increase. And then the number of sexual assault cases that are going unreported in Houston, which has some of the largest foreign born and undocumented populations in the country. Um, there was a huge increase right after um, SB4 was passed. So now instead um, sexual predators are going loose. Their assaults are not being reported. Um, and that's because women of color and immigrants are fearful to report these crimes. They risk not just the violence of sexual assault. They risk the violence of being separated from their families, of being terrorized because of their immigration status. And no one should be having to make the decision of putting the safety of their family over facing deportation. That, that just shouldn't be a question for anyone. That doesn't make anybody safer for that to be the case. Right. And, you know, I've also talked to lots of people about the actions of ICE recently. And officially, they say that they haven't changed their policies, right? But there's something definitely going on. People are being snatched off the street or they're taking their kids to school. So what are what is your take on that with ICE and the way that they've changed? I mean, we've definitely seen changes as far as how ICE has been used as a weapon of retaliation, uh, a weapon of retaliation uh, against both local government and activists across the country. ICE, for example, right after Trump came in and our local municipality said that they would support sanctuary cities, that they would support protecting the rights of immigrants and not asking about immigration status because they don't believe that that makes Austin safer. You saw raids start to happen and um, an ICE official admitted that it was retaliation for local government saying that they would not comply with Trump's anti-immigrant measures. So that one, people need to know that's illegal for them to be doing. Right. Um, and there's already lawsuits pertaining to that. And then you've seen activists in different parts of the country where ICE has admitted to going and targeting immigrants because they were quoted in the paper as saying that they were undocumented or saying that they were foreign born and that they were fighting for the rights of immigrants. So that is really terrorizing the entire community. So when people are standing up for their rights, it's it's a way to terrorize the community so that they are don't fight back. And what we also need to remember about that as well is that there are rules that ICE has that they're not supposed to target people at protests, but they're using information from the media to target people that have gone to protests. So I want to talk a bit about DACA. So in the fall, Trump ended DACA. And they weren't accepting new applications. And I think following that, between 18 and 19,000 DREAMers lost their status. Yeah, so DACA is, is really important here in Texas. And what's also important to note is that even though Texas has the second larger, largest DREAMer population, they have 124,000 DREAMers in the state. Our state attorney general had threatened to sue the Trump administration if they didn't rescind DACA. And also the original case with DAPA, which for 
parents that had U.S. citizen children that were undocumented that the Obama administration had tried to extend these same protections to, that the lawsuit that ultimately upended DAPA originated from Texas as well. So it's important to know the role that Texas has had on leading in policies to really attack and assault the rights of immigrants across this country. So once Trump announced that he was rescinding DACA, it sent communities across this country and young people into absolute limbo of not knowing what would happen to them the next day, of putting their entire dreams and their futures on hold. And we saw young people across this country mobilize to defend the rights of dreamers, both people that are undocumented, that have DACA, and people that are citizens as well. There have been a couple of important court decisions from New York and California that have put a halt on the Trump administration being able to rescind DACA, essentially keep the program intact and allowed to move forward so that people can continue to apply, work, and live in the country that they call home and that they have all of their connections and roots tied to at this point of their lives. But it still puts their life in limbo because, you know, they've gone over the last several months through a really chaotic last year where they didn't know at any time when DACA might come up for being rescinded. Then it was rescinded. Then Congress was supposed to act. And then, then they have these court decisions. It's just really traumatic for a lot of young people. So right now, the program remains intact, but we need to organize and mobilize to find a long-term answer at the congressional level. And we also need to fight for not just dreamers, many family and friends of mine that have been in this country for 20 years, two decades, waiting for some kind of protection that both parties have often said is necessary, but have refused to do anything on. Right. So so I think that there was a deadline recently, the March 5th deadline. So the original decision in fall, it accepted new applications unless your status expired after March 5th. Is that correct? That's right. And then the other recent court decision, my understanding is, allows uh, people to continue to reapply. Right, exactly. Which, you know, sounds like, I mean, I guess for people who were waiting to renew, that's good news They're, for now that their, their status is safe. But honestly, I mean, the thing is, is that this administration, I mean, even during his campaign, he made it clear how he felt about immigration, right? Just to be honest, they don't really want a solution that would allow more immigrants or allow the immigrants that are here to stay. I mean, you know, just to put it plainly. Yeah, I think the important thing in it, Jolt, we talk a lot about this, you know, 10% of our members are dreamers. The vast majority are kids of immigrants like me or second or third generation Texans. For us, The fight about immigration actually has nothing to do with immigration. It has to do with the fact that the majority of our population in this country will soon be people of color and that the only legal pathway for them to try and stop that from happening, people like Steve Miller, white supremacists like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, is to block immigrants from coming into this country because the vast majority of them are people of color. So the same, you know, originally they said that they didn't want to attack dreamers, that they only wanted to attack quote unquote criminals um, and stop them from coming into this country. Then it moved to getting dreamers out of the country. And then the goalpost moved once again to blocking legal immigration from quote shithole countries was right. uh, countries in Africa. And so all of the immigration debate we need to understand is a white supremacist agenda The fact that communities of color will soon be the majority of this country and certain people in the Trump administration and and in neo-Nazi white supremacist groups and some anti-immigrant groups 
It is simply a question of the fact of the color of the skin of the vast majority of people that are immigrants. And this is their only legal pathway to stop us from becoming the majority. Right. So you're absolutely right. And people don't say that often enough. That's essentially the core of their of their goal. Right. It's to, to keep brown people from coming into the country, essentially. So. That's right. I think that it's important that we organize and mobilize. And that also we reframe the immigration debate as one not solely rooted in questions of immigration, but rooted in questions not just of race, but of who we are as a country. That it, and these are sound like basic principles that we already fought and decided as a country, but, you know, sometimes we need a reminder of what we already fought for and how we need to move forward as a country about the fact that people of color are equally as American as anybody else, that our country is at its strongest and best when everyone has equal protections and equal rights. And that is the question I think that we're trying to answer and figure out here in Texas at Jolt, that who do we become as a state and country when the majority of our population are people of color and immigrants? And how do we build a democracy that truly represents all of us? So what is the role of women in JOLT? Um, 80% of our members are women. Um, and that's by design because Latinos vote more often. They're more progressive and they volunteer more. You know, we like to say we're like many social justice organizations where women do much of the work or most of the work. But at JOLT, women get most of the credit as well. And, you know, we really use the power of young women to fight back against laws that are both racist, anti-immigrant, and sexist. So one of the things that people know us most for is for the of action we did to fight against the law SB4, where 15 of our young members dressed in their quinceañera dresses and did choreographed dances and protested against that law last year. And that event reached an estimated 50 million Americans. It was part brown pride, girl power, and using the love of our culture and community to fight back against hate. So what can the rest of the country do to support your efforts there in Texas? You know, I think that the major questions that we're facing as a country today about who we become and the fight for the rights of immigrants and people of color will be fought in one here in Texas. So what, what happens here in Texas, I think, matters to all Americans. And even if you're not here in Texas with us, you can join and support our movement by following our work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and amplifying and sharing that work. And then also you know, even pitching in 10, 15 bucks or becoming a monthly sustainer goes a long way in a place like Texas. Well, Christina Sinsun, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for having me and for all the great work and coverage that you give to our communities. My next guest is Amanda Littman. She's the founder of the organization Run for Something, which of course gives young progressives the tools and support they need to run for office. And I have to apologize in advance because my conversation with Amanda ends abruptly. We had some technical issues on our call, but I still wanted to bring the conversation to you because I think that the work that Amanda is doing with Run for Something is really crucial to the success in upcoming elections. Here's my conversation with Amanda Littman. Amanda Littman, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I was reading about how you originally got the idea for Run for Something. You know, after the election, there were lots of people, including myself, who were looking for ways to help, you know, ways to resist after Trump's election. And your advice would often be run for something. You know, but I was looking at some of the numbers and at the influx of people who were interested in running for office. And, you know, with all that enthusiasm, there must be some people whose skills are, are better suited elsewhere, you know, other than at the top of the ticket. And I'm probably one of those people, honestly, because running for office requires a unique set of skills. What do you say to those people? 
Um, there are certainly folks who might think there might be better uses of their skill set. But I think everyone should at least consider it um, and shouldn't rule it out without asking themselves why. Because often the reasons where you're like, oh, I shouldn't run because I don't look like a politician or I don't couldn't raise the money or any of those reasons, like those are bullshit reasons. (laughs) There are real reasons, but there's a lot of the excuses that we tell ourselves for why we don't do it are socialized into us, especially for young women and young people of color. I would rather not be the one to say no. You know? Yeah. So in your opinion, you know, those star candidates, those candidates who are going to push the Democrats over the edge, you know, to take back the House and Senate, what do they possess? So I think they do a couple of things. One, they're rooted in their community. So meaning they really understand what their voters care about and they run on local issues. Voters want someone who's willing to solve problems for them. And those kinds of problems are solved locally. Um, Two, the best candidates are ones that are comfortable in their own skin, that are authentic and willing to show their flaws and who can be themselves on the trail and know how to communicate that. Um, That takes a certain amount of self-confidence and assurance. And it's really hard and really scary. And I think it's really important. I wanted to ask you about the midterms coming Mm -hmm. up, right? Because in in the past, turnout amongst millennials for midterms is usually lower, lower than what's probably needed for the upcoming midterms. What can we hope for millennials during the midterms? Millennials are expected to be the largest voting bloc in 2018. Um, I think we were seeing really exciting candidates that are giving our generation someone to vote for. I think we're seeing campaigns do the right thing in terms of investing in the communication outlets where our generation is, meaning online. I am so cautiously optimistic. I have to be by by definition. I can't get out of bed in the morning if I'm not a little bit cautiously optimistic. I think that you're going to see young people show up not just at the polls as voters, but I know that you're going to see us on on the ballot. And that's really important. Yeah. So I was reading in your book, Run for Something, and you mentioned that, you know, you were quite a young politico, right? In high school, I think you said your first ever skip day was to see Obama speak, which is impressive. I was insufferable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I was just wondering, do you see yourself in these high school activists right now, the Parkland activists, you know, and the activists who are responding to, you know, the school shootings? Oh, they're so much braver and more courageous and more strategic and sharper and snarkier than I could ever hope to be. Um, What I really appreciate about them is that they do not give a single fuck. (laughs) Um, They have nothing to lose because they have already lost so much. So for them, it isn't a political decision whether or not to stand up for what they believe in. For them, it's the obvious and only decision. There's no alternative. Um, I'm really grateful to them for their bravery because I think when I was 17, as insufferable as I was and as much as I cared about politics, I wouldn't have put myself out there like that. Yeah, they are quite brave. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about your new campaign. You're urging Democratic candidates to run against Florida lawmakers who are backed by the NRA, which I think is which is brilliant. Do you think this is going to fly in Florida? Absolutely. So I worked in the Florida in the 2014 cycle. Um, I know there's definitely a culture of gun ownership in certain parts of the state, but I think it's really important to give these uh, elected officials who are supported by the NRA a run for their money. They shouldn't be allowed to go without a an opponent. They shouldn't be allowed to stay on the ballot without somebody challenging their positions. Voters should be given an option. Even if the candidates that we're working with lose, they're bringing this fight to the forefront of the debate. They're giving progressives in their areas something to rally around. And ultimately, it makes more progress towards the larger goal. I think that really matters. Do you think that we're in a position now where Democratic candidates just generally around the country can run on the fact that they don't have support from the NRA, especially in, it's amazing. Yeah, in the South? Do you think that that's some, a place that we're at? 
I do. I think there's a lot of voters who, who want to say and want to vote for being for something. And part of that is being for making our community safer. But you also did something similar when Betsy DeVos was confirmed. You encouraged people to run for school board. I mean, is that something that's working? Are people catching on to the fact that down ballot races have some value? Absolutely. You know, we've seen uh, hundreds of young women in particular, but young men too, sign up to say they want to run for school board because they think uh, it matters who's making decisions about our education system. You know, Run for Something as an organization only works with people running for local office, things like state legislature, city council, school board, county commissioner, some judgeships, that kind of thing, for two reasons. One, those are places where as a first-time candidate, you can really make some traction and you can talk to the number of voters and raise the amount of money you need to win. But two, more importantly, Importantly, those offices are so important and the people that are signing up with us are understand that and are willing to, to put their names in the hat for them. So tell me about your new effort, your new fundraising effort, Fund for Something. Yeah, so Fund for Something is our work in 14 states across the country to raise money directly for candidates themselves. Um, we're asking supporters to go to our website to give to our candidates or grouping them out by women or by NRA-backed candidates or school board candidates, that kind of thing, um, whatever tickles your fancy, and to go and you can, with one donation, support a whole bunch of local races. Um, your information will go directly to the campaign. They'll have the best way to use that money. And ultimately, they'll get be able to build a relationship with you as a supporter. Um, we are doing this for a couple of reasons. One, we think it's really important to, to support the campaigns directly. Um, they're the ones who the best know how to use their money. Two, these are races that aren't going to get the kind of donor bases or access that a congressional race or a Senate race will get. So it's on us to sort of spotlight them and to allow them to, to plead their case to you as a supporter. Three, we're working in these states for a mix of reasons. In some states, it's because we think that there is an opportunity to flip a state legislative chamber or to break a supermajority. In other states, we're doing it because our candidates are simply amazing and we couldn't come up with a reason not to give them money if we can. Well, Amanda Lippman, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Pleasure talking to you too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. As I mentioned earlier, my conversation with Amanda Lippman was cut short. But at the end of our conversation, she mentioned the importance of running for something. And if you can't run for something, ask a friend or a family member. And if no one that you know is willing or able to run for office, support your local down ballot races. For more information about the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit electorate.com or visit us on social media. We're on Facebook and on Twitter at Electorate, of course. And until next time, keep up the good fight.